Hello, and welcome back to Felony Spectator. I am your host, Heather. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about a Canadian crime that took place in Sydney River, Nova Scotia. I recently read the book called Murder at McDonald's, The Killers Next Door, and it was quite upsetting because of all the circumstances that took place. It's a really good book. If you like true crime reading, I would definitely check it out. Anyway, I was too young to remember when all this happened, but it said that it really shook up all of Canada and was so unbelievable and so senseless. It's about a mass murder that took place inside a McDonald's restaurant. There has been other McDonald's murders or murders that have taken place in fast food restaurants, but what makes this one different is that it was one of the first mass murders in a fast food restaurant in Canada. And there are quite a few people that we're going to talk about, and I will try not to confuse you, but get comfortable and pay attention. So Sydney River is a small bedroom community on the outskirts of Sydney, Nova Scotia, on the east coast of Canada. And just like most towns across North America, there is a McDonald's restaurant on one of the main roads in town, which can also be seen from the highway. This McDonald's was like any other McDonald's where the community would go to, grab a quick meal, get a treat, bring their families. They probably knew friends who worked there. It was also situated in a bit of a shopping area where other restaurants lined the streets like gas stations and other small businesses. Jimmy Fagan was an employee of McDonald's who was scheduled to work the night of May 7th, 1992. He was the son of Al and Teresa Fagan, who raised five boys and two girls. Jimmy loved life and was known for his huge smile. He was 27 years old and gearing up to quit his McDonald's job to work at his brother's landscaping company. And this time of year, the snow was melting, but it was still quite cold. So it would only be another week or so before Jimmy would give notice. And he liked working at McDonald's, and he mentioned that he'd miss the friends he made, but he loved working outside more. Neil Burroughs was another night shift worker and a friend of Jimmy's. Working the late shift, it was their job to get the restaurant ready for the breakfast crew. They loved working together. They would joke all night, tell stories, and their long shift would go by fast because they got along so well. Neil was said to have a great sense of humor. He was 29 years old, and was working to support his wife and child. And employment was scarce in 1992 in Nova Scotia and most of the East Coast, but between his job at McDonald's and his wife's hairdressing job, they were doing okay. On this particular night, Neil was working 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., and Jimmy's shift was staggered from 2 a.m. to 10 a.m. So even though Jimmy had a few hours before his shift started, he liked to come in early so he could chat and hang out with the evening crew before they went home. And that night, the last of the evening crew would be Donna Warren and Arlene McNeil. Donna and Arlene were also good friends and usually left the restaurant together. So Donna Warren was the shift manager at McDonald's, but had started working there while in high school. She was 22 years old and had enrolled in the radio and television program at Memorial High to gain communication skills she would need to be a defense attorney. Her mother was very proud of Donna, and Donna was said to be very ambitious and also very friendly. Arlene McNeil was 21 and was saving up enough money to go to university. Arlene had already done her shift, but wanted to wait for Donna as they typically liked to leave together. 
It made them feel safer at night to go to their cars together and drive following each other home. And this was before cell phones. So their parents also liked this because you never know if someone's car was going to break down. Arlene's last duty before her shift was done was to stock inventory, but it took her less time than usual today because Derek Wood had stayed behind to help her out. Derek Wood was 18. He was also new to McDonald's, being hired for only a few months. Some would say he was a bit awkward and shy, and he had grown up on the other side of the tracks, so to speak. He still had teenage angst, but like any other teenager, he was interested in computers, video games, and music. He hadn't had any plans as far as his future went because he had dropped out of high school, but getting a job at McDonald's would keep him busy, and he hoped one day he could move out of the house. His main job was to work the cash register, but on this night, he didn't seem to be in a hurry to leave, so he offered to help Arlene stocking the inventory, and Arlene was happy to have the help. Arlene still had a bit of time before Donna's shift was over, so she would go into the basement office and count those colorful sticks that are used to hold Ronald McDonald's balloons. There was a birthday party scheduled the following day, so she thought she would help get that organized. So inside the restaurant, we would have Donna, Arlene, Neil, and Jimmy was on the way. Jimmy had decided to jump in a cab last minute because it was cold on this particular night and the winds were icy. Donna would make her way downstairs to check on her friend Arlene before they would leave together. What they didn't know was that Derek still hadn't gone home from his shift and he was down the road at a payphone calling his friends Darren Muse and Freeman McNeil. Darren Muse was also 18 and had dropped out of high school, but it said he wasn't a bad kid. In fact, he was athletic, well-liked, and had really supportive parents. He was the youngest of four boys, and I guess his only major downfall was that he always seemed to have to prove himself, and that probably comes with low self-esteem. His parents loved him, and his dad actually had hoped that if school wasn't his thing, that he'd go into business with him. It's also said that Darren also planned to work with computers as he saw them as a way of the future. Freeman McNeil was 23 and had finished high school. He spent a year at the Nova Scotia Teachers College and had worked briefly at Malcolm Monroe Junior High as a student teacher. The faculty had all liked him, but he lost his ambition to be a teacher and left his job to work as a private security guard. Work wasn't steady though, so this meant he was spending more and more time with Derek and Darren. And it said that Freeman seemed a little lost in life and couldn't really figure out what he wanted to do with himself. Shortly after Derek Wood had started his job at McDonald's, he came up with the idea to rob it. I guess there's a conveyor belt for deliveries and it had broken down one day while he was working. So he was sent to go to the basement to a different door near the crew training room. And this door wasn't used as often as the other entrances. And it's this door that made Derek Wood realize that anyone could just come into the restaurant unnoticed. That is, if it was left propped open. Derek Wood, Darren, and Freeman thought that if they had money, they'd be able to do something more with their lives. So when Derek Wood approached them with this idea, it seemed good. What could possibly go wrong? Now, for some reason, they thought the restaurant would have upwards of $200,000 in the safe. And this is what really solidified their plan. All they needed to do was break in and steal the money. 
Derek would leave the basement back door open, which was rarely used, and they'd slip inside unnoticed. Freeman would man the door, making sure nobody could escape, and Darren would watch the kitchen while Derek Wood would grab the cash. Now, originally, it said that their plan wasn't to harm anyone, but as they formulated this plan, it got increasingly disturbing. They talked about using martial arts skills on the employees, and then Freeman decided to steal a gun from his girlfriend's dad, a 22 pistol for intimidation. Darren also decided to wear a mask and subdue anyone working in the kitchen. They also thought they might need a fourth person to man the door, just in case anyone tried to escape. Greg Lawrence was asked to be this person. They went over the details with him, and at first he agreed because the sounds of splitting $200,000 piqued his interest. But Gregory backed out at the last minute. He just had a bad feeling, and he just didn't want to be a part of their plan. But Derek, Darren, and Freeman decided to go ahead with their plan anyways. On May 6, Freeman drove Derek to work. Derek took the gun, the ammunition, and stuffed it into his backpack and went into the building. He would then change into his uniform and stuff his clothes into the same backpack. When Derek's shift was almost over, Darren and Freeman would put on a second pair of clothes over their street clothes, and the second pair of clothes were to be discarded later in case fibers were left at the scene. They parked at the Tim Hortons where they could see McDonald's up the hill and they'd wait. When Derek was done changing out of his uniform, he jammed his backpack against the frame of the basement door, making sure it was left slightly ajar. Then he headed to Tim Hortons and joined Darren and Freeman. From here, they would drive to the other side of the bypass over the highway into a residential area and parked on a secluded gravel road. They would walk across a field and run back across the highway into another field that bordered McDonald's. They would quietly approach the basement door and sneak in. At this time, Arlene and Donna were just finishing up in the basement office where Arlene was sorting the party favors. They would walk into... They would begin to walk into the hallway where they would see Derek Wood armed with a pistol. Darren had a mask on and he held two knives and Freeman was holding a shovel. The three men had startled Donna and Arlene and the girls stopped suddenly. Donna had always joked that if she was ever robbed, she would just carry the safe out for the robbers. She would comply and do anything to avoid trouble. Tonight though, she was confused because she recognized Derek Wood. He looked at her, she looked at him, and Arlene would recognize Derek too and thought it was strange because he had friends in the restaurant and that wasn't allowed. And why was one wearing a Halloween mask? Arlene would ask, is this a joke? Then Wood raised his arms and shot her. Arlene fell to the ground, still holding the colorful stick she was counting for the birthday party. Donna would panic and crouch down to help her friend. Derek and Darren would then run past everyone and went straight upstairs where Neil was working away scrubbing the sinks. It's assumed that he didn't hear the shot because of the noise from all the machines in the restaurant. He would be on one knee when he suddenly fell to the floor. Neil would still be alive and he would see blood pooling on the floor and probably in his mouth as well. Darren would then take one of the knives and plunge it in the left side of Neil's neck, attempting to reach his jugular. It said in one of the confessions that this also did not kill Neil and he would try to get up asking for help. Darren would yell out, 
This guy just won't die. And Freeman would suddenly show up and swing violently towards Neil with his shovel. But it would take one more shot of the gun before Neil succumbed to all of his injuries. Donna was still in the basement and scared for her life when Derek would return to the office downstairs. He would tell her to get up, go upstairs, and demanded that she open the safe. She actually managed to remember the combination even though it said she was hysterical. After the door of the safe opened, she stood up but quickly collapsed after Wood shot her in the head. Derek Wood would take the money from the safe and shoot Donna one more time in the face. Now, Derek Wood didn't know yet, but the safe only had $2,017. Unfortunately, when this was all happening, Jimmy was entering the parking lot in the cab he hired to take him to work. When Derek and his friends were about to leave the restaurant, Jimmy would open the door and he would see his co-worker Derek Wood. Jimmy would say hi to Derek, and it's unclear who actually pulled the trigger, but most reports say Freeman shoots Jimmy. Jimmy would fall down right there in the doorway, and the three men jumped over him and back through the field. The cab driver heard what he thought was firecrackers, and he would look back towards McDonald's and see figures running out of the restaurant carrying bags. He threw the cab in reverse, screeching his tires to see if he could get someone's attention inside, but nobody came out, so he drove back up towards the drive-thru and he saw Jimmy in the doorway. Daniel, the cab driver, would radio for RCMP and ambulance to come to McDonald's, and he also wouldn't leave the scene, but he would drive around the restaurant praying for help to arrive soon. The three men ran back to their car, but Freeman threw his bloody shovel into a culvert not far from where the car was parked. Back in the car, Darren would brag that he finally got to slit someone's throat, It was said that Darren had told his friends months earlier that he wasn't really into violence. So even to Darren and Derek, this seemed like a very strange comment. Derek Wood at this point also realized he left his backpack still shoved in the door of the basement. He needed to create a new alibi for himself. So he demanded that they pull the car over and he would run to a nearby convenience store to report that he heard gunshots from inside the restaurant while he was outside smoking after his shift. And he inadvertently left his bag there as he ran to call police. Meanwhile, back at the restaurant, the cab driver, Daniel, was probably in shock while circling the parking lot waiting for help. His friend and fellow cab driver, John McInnes, rushed over to help. They would both get out of their cars and ran to the doorway where Jimmy was lying face down. They would roll him over and see that he was still alive and desperately needed help. John would radio one more time for help again, saying that his fare was shot in the head and Daniel would rush to get paper towels to try and stop the bleeding. This was not emergency responders' first call for help. As Daniel McInnes was holding paper towel to Jimmy's forehead, he would hear the phone ringing inside the restaurant. And he knew that there was always someone working, so it was very weird to him that nobody was answering. So he decided to go inside to see who was calling. As he walked through the office where the phone was ringing, he'd see Donna slumped over in a very awkward position. He answered the phone, but nobody was on the other end. Seeing this female with her head bent in such an awkward position, he'd pull her away from the wall. And realizing the extent of what was happening, he knew he needed to get back outside. On his way out, he would see Neil laying face down in a pool of blood that extended over a meter around his head. 
Neil was still clutching the leg of the sink. He would check for a pulse, but sadly, there was none. He needed to tell John what he saw, but on his way out, he would hear gurgling sounds and panicked. He thought someone was still inside, and perhaps it was still the shooter. The gurgling sound he heard was unfortunately Arlene, who was laying face down, gasping for breath. She was inhaling blood from the large puddle that formed around her head from being shot. When police arrived, Daniel would tell them what he saw, loud bangs that sounded like fireworks, and then possibly two to three individuals running from the building into the nearby field. John would then come out screaming, there are bodies everywhere. And remember, this is a small town, so calling for backup meant that officers from surrounding towns needed to come in. And that can sometimes take upwards of an hour. So Corporal clearly, the police officer who arrived first on scene, had to make a call whether to go inside or not. Constable Henry Jensen offered to go in with him, and they would sweep the restaurant together, not knowing who or what they would find inside without backup. Police later said that what they encountered in the restaurant would change their lives forever. The crime scene was so fresh that the smell of gunpowder and blood still lingered the air. Several young victims whose lives were savagely taken. Donna was shot at such close range that her eye was black from gunpowder and stippling and soot. Her hair was bloody and matted. And there was bloodstains on the walls and the sounds of Arlene clinging to life would haunt them forever. To these officers, it was unimaginable that this crime scene could simply be about money. Thankfully, ambulance arrived quickly and Arlene and Jimmy were taken to hospital, but with life-threatening injuries. Sadly, Donna and Neil were beyond help. Derek Wood had called police a second time from King's convenience store, but this time he gave his name and he said he was there when the shooting took place. But because police were so busy, they just took Derek's info and told him to go home and they'd call him in the morning. Freeman and Darren drove back to Freeman's house, and his mother would wake up and ask where they were. Freeman would tell her that he was home to get his girlfriend's inhaler. Then, to make himself more credible, he would call his girlfriend and tell her that he'd found it. Darren and Freeman would then leave again, and Freeman told his mother that he was staying at his girlfriend's house that night. Instead, they would be disposing of their clothes, spent shell casings, and anything else that wasn't of value taken from the safe. After that, Freeman then would drop off Darren at a 24-hour convenience store before heading to his girlfriend's house. Darren would kill some time there playing video poker machines before heading home. So in less than two hours after slitting a man's throat, Darren would be using the money he stole to play some video poker. Derek Wood would still be wandering the streets. The businesses around King Street were all on lockdown, as per police instruction, because they weren't sure where the killers were, and they didn't want to take any chances. Derek Woods saw the roadblock around McDonald's and eventually made his way down there to speak with police to further lock down his alibi. It's assumed he was probably in shock and overly excited from adrenaline, because when he spoke with police, he would go from calm to excited to relaxed again. His behavior was so odd that police almost thought he had been drinking. Wood also wasn't making any sense. His story about where he went and what he did after witnessing the shooting kept changing as well. So Derek was taken down to the station for questioning. 
Police would also find his footprints going into the restaurant from the back door. If he had been outside smoking and heard gunshots and ran, why was his footprints going back inside? The community of Sydney was so upset. This type of violent robbery was so unusual. Other businesses started to become really fearful. What if the killers wanted to do this again? Sadly, Jimmy's family would hear that Jimmy was basically gone. He was living solely on life support and they would have to say goodbye to the person who loved life and loved people. Arlene would also be on life support, but for her, there was hope. They didn't know what to expect at the time, but Arlene would survive, but would be heavily affected by being shot. She would remain in a wheelchair and disabled for the rest of her life. Derek Wood would eventually lead police to question Darren Muse and Freeman McNeil, doing his best, of course, not to incriminate himself. The frustrating thing was they were all wearing gloves, so there was no fingerprints left behind. A lot of the evidence still hadn't been found either, so police really had nothing to go on and were just pushing for confessions. When Darren was brought in, he was at first cooperative and agreed to a polygraph, but then he changed his mind and refused. He eventually did agree to do it again the following day instead, so police would take Darren home and agree to pick him up the next morning for his test. Later that same night, Darren would write a suicide note and slit his wrist. However, his injury was superficial and didn't require any medical attention at all. His note was also very strange. It mentioned people who were in Halifax and that Darren thought he was in danger. When Darren was brought back in for the polygraph, he failed the test, but he still wouldn't admit to anything and he was being very arrogant and eventually he would just ask to go home. And police couldn't hold him, so they drove him back, and while they were driving, he made up another false story about hearing strangers talking about robbing McDonald's, and he thought he was being followed by them. He also told the officers about his failed suicide attempt, and it was quite obvious that this lame attempt at suicide and confusing suicide note was all just made up to throw off police. Finally, on May 15th, Gregor Lawrence gave a statement to police. Remember, Gregor Lawrence was asked to be the fourth person involved in the robbery, but backed out last minute. His statement was implicating Darren, Freeman, and Derek. And the police found his statement to be very credible because he knew of the Halloween mask and that a 22 caliber revolver was used that was stolen by Freeman from his girlfriend's stepdad and was also gonna be brought to the robbery. The robbery was supposed to happen on May 1st, but was delayed until Derek was scheduled to work a night shift. And Gregor didn't initially come forward to police because all three men denied that it was them when the news broke. They all said it was just a strange coincidence that a robbery took place at the very same McDonald's they had planned to rob. It wasn't until Gregory noticed that Derek stopped hanging out with the others and seemed distant like something was really bothering him. Freeman was all of a sudden buying car stereo equipment when he didn't normally have money. It was just their behavior that made Gregor realize that it was probably them. So police would detain all three for more questioning. On Derek Wood's 19th birthday, while he was out celebrating and drinking with his friends, he was arrested and brought in. Derek would sit in silence, reminding the police of his right to remain silent. When Derek did finally break, he would pick up a piece of paper that listed his charges and point to them one by one saying, guilty, 
guilty, not guilty, guilty. And then he said he was scared, but he would give them his own statement. And apparently Derek never got his cut of the money. He didn't want it. He wanted to detach himself from the other two men and try to move on with his life and block out the robbery, which seemed to be too much for him. Freeman was next with a partial confession, and Darren would be the last one to confess. When Freeman was questioned, he finally started to crack, but his statement was also completely inconsistent. He basically threw his friends under the bus, but Freeman took police on a reenactment to show them what had happened and claimed he only picked up Darren after the robbery. He would also say that Darren said Derek did most of the shooting, but he feels like it was probably Darren that did the most. He would also show them the brook where a lot of the evidence was dumped. When Darren finally confessed, he would deny that he even wanted to harm anyone and said that all the deaths were not his fault. His mind apparently went blank after hearing the first gunshot, and then he exercised his right to remain silent. Police didn't give up, though. They would continue to ask him questions, and after Darren spoke with a lawyer, he gave a new, more detailed confession, saying that after Derek shot the manager, he heard another shot upstairs and went to see what happened. He would see a man bleeding on the floor by the sink, and he knew that this man needed help. Darren felt that this man was going to die anyways, and he didn't want the man to suffer anymore, and that's why he stabbed him. He wanted everyone to know he wasn't a shooter and only hurt someone to put them out of their misery. There were three separate trials for the boys, and they all stuck to their own stories, putting more involvement on the others. Derek Wood received two life sentences, one for first-degree murder of Donna Warren and Neil Burroughs, and a second sentence for the attempted murder of Arlene McNeil. He's been denied parole several times and is apparently a little shithead in jail, too. Darren Muse was sentenced to 20 years before being eligible for parole. He was granted full parole November 22, 2012, with imposed restrictions of not allowing contact with surviving victims or family and refraining from going back to Sydney, Nova Scotia, and no drugs. Freeman McNeil was sentenced to first-degree murder, second-degree murder, and forcible confinement. He was believed to provide the gun, which he denies, the escape vehicle, rope, and a shovel. He denies that he even knew someone had a gun. He has since been granted temporary unescorted absences from prison once a month as of November 2019 as a lead-up to day parole eligibility. Sadly, Arlene has since passed away from complications of her injuries in 2018, and it's said that she was still a very happy person, loved playing on the computer and listening to country music. Now, the media often reports this as a botched robbery, and I don't really know why. Saying it was botched makes it sound less gruesome and more like an accident. They were planning on robbing this place for weeks. They had planned all the details, and Derek knew his co-workers were inside. The same co-workers that showed him kindness— the same co-workers that worked with him just hours before. The victims didn't try to confront them or stop them. They didn't attack them. They didn't do anything but say hi. There was no doubt that Donna would have handed over the money without question. And obviously they didn't want witnesses, but they knew there would be witnesses. They knew that there was still employees in the building. 
The men also didn't plan to leave town, and knowing that there would be witnesses, the plan would have been for them to get out of Dodge. No sleepover at their girlfriend's house, no video poker. I'm sure their plan was to have no witnesses, destroy the evidence, and deny everything. The McDonald's on King's Road would operate for eight more years before the owner decided to close its doors and tear it down. They rebuilt another McDonald's in another area of town, and the empty lot still remains vacant to this day. None of the men ever explained their actions for their crimes they committed that night. All they wanted was money, and all they got was a measly $2,017. And it makes me pretty mad to think that the victims were all nice to Derek. They were his co-workers. There were no issues between him, Jimmy, Arlene, Donna, Neil... I remember how I was in my early 20s, just going to work, having friends there. It was good times. I have great memories. It's an age where you're growing up and becoming independent. You're not thinking about being murdered. You would never imagine that a coworker at a place like McDonald's would be your nightmare. It was so incredibly senseless and it didn't need to happen. I also feel terrible for everyone in Sydney River. Stuff like this just hits harder in a small town. Everyone knows everyone. This crime has left a permanent mark on Sydney, and I'm not sure justice was served here. This case was so brutal and so cold. My heart goes out to everyone who was affected that night. Thanks again for joining me here at Felony Spectator. Please hit subscribe so you don't miss another episode and hit like if you want to show me some support. Thanks again. See you next week.